0: The following message is from the 2017 IBCD pre-conference with Chris Moles on the topic of domestic violence. So, unlike Jim, I have no problem plugging my book. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Jim and I had lunch together, and we were talking about books and everything, and I said, I've literally made scores of dollars off this book. It's just rolling (laughs) 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 in. Boom. Okay. All right. So, um, yeah, I'm going to try to be excited and upbeat, but, man, my lunch was good. I had a breakfast burrito. I know it was lunch, but I don't know what time it is really anyway. I'm from the East. But, uh, man, it was awesome. And it was chorizo, and I'm, like, getting ready to pass out. (laughs) So the notes are up here. If I pass out, someone tag in (laughs) and just finish up. All right, so I believe we're doing victim care, correct? And we're talking a little bit about working with uh, victims. This is a category where I'm a little less familiar. We do some victim care work, and I work with a team. So one of the things I would recommend, one of the areas of being a small church pastor that's been tremendous, that I think maybe big churches don't have as an advantage, is that a small church you're kind of forced. To find resources anywhere you can. And so partnerships are kind of necessity in in our work because I can't do much by myself and our church is so small. It's like uh, I teach at uh, Faith Church in Lafayette every year. And those jokers, man, they are amazing in community. And they built a YMCA on their, church, on their church property, it's impressive. And I remember saying to a group one time when I was out there, I said, you know, church my size, we can't build a Y unless it's like an actual, the letter Y and we put it in the front yard and, or whatever. We have to really hunt uh, for partnerships. And so that's how I got involved in the work to begin with. I was praying, Lord, um, I'm looking for something to do. I need help connecting. And uh, not long after that, a state trooper pulled up on a motorcycle and he had just started a juvenile crime board. And he said, hey, I heard you're the guy around here I should talk to about working with kids. And I said, of course. I don't know where you heard that, I don't, but okay. And that's where it all started rolling uh, how I got involved in criminal corrections. And I told you earlier that I'm part of a larger team. And so our team is a federally funded uh, task force. It's called the STOP team. You might have one in your county, I don't know. And it's uh, law enforcement officers, prosecutors, victim advocates, sometimes guys like me. We have two pastors on that team. Our chief law enforcement officer is a believer, a deacon at his church. My partner is a believer. One of the advocates, one of our key advocates is a key leader at her church. It's just a privilege to over the years kind of infiltrate that team so that we have a, a group of believers that can contact and work with each other. So I say all that to say this, when you're engaging in domestic violence ministry, team ministry is essential. And here's what I mean by that. You will often find maybe one person in a larger church that's passionate about this issue. And it's generally a woman, and she's usually really excited, no offense, but sometimes the people that she approaches for help are not as excited as she is, right? And she kind of maybe gets labeled a certain way. It's important to have Uh, and a team approach, multiple multiple disciplinary approach. So here's what I'm gonna suggest. If you're going to develop domestic violence ministry in your church, first, you really need to get educated. Um, Today's conference is good, but it's probably not enough. It's gonna be a lot more resources and things. And putting together a group of people of men and women that are really gonna tackle this issue would be an essential piece. For me, it's easier because I don't have to look within the walls of my church because I'm already connected to a really good team and we worked collaboratively. But if you go to a larger church, you're part of a larger church, you're probably gonna wanna have an in-house ministry that's gonna require some elder leadership and some key leadership. So just some things to think about. Uh, You know the definitions. Uh, Normally I do these talks in various settings. It's very rare to have. I will say this. Let me say this about you guys because you guys are awesome so far. Please don't disappoint me because I'm having a great experience so far. (laughs) Uh Normally I teach in breakout sessions at larger conferences because quite frankly, my experience, and I think it's starting to change. I think this is evidence of it, a a conversation, a group I led in uh, North Carolina a couple months ago had a pretty significant crowd. My experience has been in biblical counseling conferences uh, this topic will draw a pretty nice crowd because people are already there. But to just have a domestic violence-centered event, we usually don't have many people show up. And I will tell you who's most absent is pastors. Uh, in fact, uh, I've read a book by Al uh, Maus, a fella in Hawaii. He's a chaplain in Hawaii. And he wrote about he was a uh, hospital chaplain, and they used to do grief care. Seminars. they used to do divorce care seminars, they used to do grieving seminars, and pastors would flock to them and they would do a domestic violence seminar and they wouldn't have a single pastor show up. Uh, I found it to be relatively true in the work that I've done. We have a domestic violence specific conference. It's usually a handful of people. So to have an event like this is spectacular. I appreciate you guys wanting to learn and get educated. It's really, really encouraging. Uh, So normally I don't, I repeat myself a lot because I'm normally hitting whoever I can hit. So all that to say, keep up the good work. All right. John Henderson, I wanted to add this for you guys. In, I believe this is from his book, Abuse. I do love that little book. I believe it's just Psalm 22. He just walks through the Psalm. He says that domestic violence is a pattern, a godless pattern of abusive behavior among spouses involving psychological, emotional, and physical means to exert and obtain power and control over the spouse for the achievement of selfish ends. So you can see John is very much uh, on a similar page to what we are. Now, usually when I mention John, uh, we're teaching at the same conference, but just in case he watches the video or listens to the audio, I think it's important that I tell you that I heart John Henderson, and I want a T-shirt that says that, and I'm tempted to get his sweater, his Argyle sweater, and wear it the same day that he does. So John, that's for you. I love you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Jeffrey Black, who uh, used to teach at CCEF in his lecture called Domestic Violence Breaking the Silence. It's a really good resource if you want to learn more about this. He says this, domestic violence is always on an escalating pattern. It always gets worse. Whatever my gut is, my instinct is about a particular marriage or a particular husband. I can never say to a woman, well, you won't be a statistic. Or your husband's a non-escalating sinner. That's probably my favorite line. I must look at each woman I counsel as a statistic in the making. I do appreciate Jeffrey Black's comments here because there is a lot of work to be done as far as gathering data and getting information. But we have, as the church, a reputation. I don't know that it's completely fair, but I do think there's some accuracy to it. We have um, this... uh, identity attached to us that we are quick to blame victims and quick to support abusers, specifically within the victim care survivor movement. Now, I think some of that is driven by accuracy. We've done a poor job. Some of that's driven by hurt because you know victims don't always get what they want. Um, but we should probably respect that too. What we can do and what we think we should do as churches and Christians is take seriously the concerns of others and, uh, and apply ourselves to doing a better job. And I really like the way Jeffrey Black puts this. For him, he's not tossing salvos at anybody. He's not being hateful, I don't think. But he is saying, you know, I'm hesitant to assume uh, anything about her safety. That's why data gathering is really important here, okay? Okay. So we've talked about, uh, about this. Oh, before I do that, let me do this exercise. So one of the things that's difficult in this work is uh, if you've never been a victim or a perpetrator, it's kind of hard to put ourselves into those categories. In fact, one night, this is a great story, uh, story time with Uncle Chris. One night, this gentleman came to group, and he was, hmm, what's the word? Rhymes with betoxicated. And... <laughs> He was um, struggling, and so I was having, I had taken him aside, and we were having a conversation because it was in the criminal side, so there were going to be some things that had to happen. So while the officers were working, he and I were having a conversation, and he said to me, Chris, where do you and Lisa get off? Now, my partner's name is Kim. (laughs) (laughs) Where do you and Lisa get off? She's never been beaten, and you've never beat a woman. How do you think you can tell us anything? And I said, well, the fact that I'm not abusive, I think positions me very well (laughs) to speak into this. But there is this assumption that um, we can't speak truth because we've not been there. I just want to help us with a, through a little exercise just to remind the gravity of what we're dealing with that, yeah, I told a little joke, but this is a serious issue. And sometimes as an outsider, we can be trivial and we can be trite if we're not careful. So what I want you to do is just imagine something for me. I'm going to ask you to use your imagination. So what I want you to do is imagine that above your head, suspended from the ceiling, is a grand piano. Got it? Everybody has a grand piano above your head. You're moving over there. Not, we're not there yet. You're still in my thunder, homie. Wait. Okay. (laughs) Everybody's got a grand piano suspended above their head. Are you there? You got it? Grand piano. How do you feel? Uncomfortable? Anxious? Anxious? What's that? Threatened. Threatened. Anybody else? Vulnerable? (laughs) Motivated to move. (laughs) All right. So you can understand that You know, a grand piano suspended over our head is not a comfortable situation, right? So this grand piano is above your heads and it's putting a little bit of pressure on you. Now, what if, um, some of the questions you might have might be, well, how's it secured? Who did the work? What type of rope did they use, right? So I'll tell you that each of your grand pianos is suspended by one single rope attached to a pulley. That pulley guides the rope and leads it back to this podium. And at any moment, I can push a series of buttons and choose which grand piano falls and when. You with me? Now, how do you feel? Scared. Scared. Wait, so we moved from discomfort, vulnerable, threatened, to fear. Okay? What's the difference? Control. Control. So the power is there, the force is there, the threat of force is there, but now that I have control, it adds a dimension, doesn't it? What do you want to do? What's that? Take the button away from me, all right? Well, I'm gonna tell you, that's a great idea, but I happen to know that this front row, they're my favorites. You guys know you're my favorite, right? (laughs) I wouldn't do anything to hurt you guys. I know the grand piano is above your head, but you don't have to worry about it. All I'm asking from you is if that guy comes to get this, that you take care of him. Deal? Sure. Great. Yeah, I can trust you guys. Now, I say that because it's in an abuse situation. Is that not what happens? If I'm manipulative and controlling and my goal is to keep you in submission, I may sacrifice some influence or use it in order to keep you that way. What else do you want to do? Make me happy, absolutely. So my happiness, it actually preserves you. One of the things in victim care that you will hear is when you come to a place where you feel like the person's safety is in danger and you, you do make the decision to say to them, I think it might be best if you separate for a period of time for your own safety, they may look at you and say, absolutely not. Because I want to know where he is and what he's doing. I'm safer in closer proximity to him. Why? Because I can make him happy. I can keep things under control. I can't predict what he'll do if I'm not there. So you might want to make me happy. What else might you want to do? Run away. Yeah, run away. Well, I'm going to tell you, running away is a bad idea. It's a bad idea. Because not only do I have great friends in the front row, I have some in the balcony in the crow's nest with sniper rifles. Don't look, don't look. Look at me. Right? And if you run, they're going to take you down. That's a threat, isn't it? Right. So your ability or willingness to flee has actually escalated my use of force that I've made a threat that may or may not be true. I don't, you don't know if there's snipers there. Right. I know this is kind of an extreme example, but... Oh, wait. They're gone. You're safe. The grand pianos are gone. You're fine. Okay. But this exercise for three minutes, four minutes, however long we did it, is intended to illustrate to you just somewhat the pressure that a victim may feel. Did you catch that? There was no act of force, but that threat of force was motivating you to make certain decisions independent of yourself. Did you lose some autonomy? Now imagine that we have the grand piano over our head for 18 months. 24 months, 5 years, 10 years, 15 years, does it alter who you are? Does it affect the way you think and process information? Does it encapsulate, encapsulate your entire identity? It can. That's why it is such an interesting thing in the victim care work is that many victims' identity will be so tied to their victimhood status. And one of the things biblical counselors has done is we don't like victim status, right? So we, we dismiss it, rightfully so, 90% of the time, but this percent of the time, we might need to walk with them graciously to get them out of that. Because we don't want to drive them further into it. We want them to have victory, right? Not be a victim. And yet, if you've been a victim for 30 years, 25 years, it's kind of ingrained in you, isn't it? Do you think you're going to trust easily if you've been under that weight for a long time? Maybe not. I mean, we can't guarantee because people are different. Everybody's different. But it is important to remember that victim care is a very delicate issue that you probably won't have. um, What's the word I'm looking for? You probably won't have much control over it. You're going to be managing it. Uh, There is no perfect intervention. I know I tell good stories, but I want you to hear this. When it comes to domestic violence and abuse, there is no perfect intervention. I have not seen one yet. If If you do one... Tell me about it. I'll find the flaw. <laughs> we'll find it together. Something will go wrong. Somebody will not be happy with you at some point. Someone will be unsatisfied. Someone might be angry. Get ready. If you start confronting abusive people, you might experience threats yourself. I was stalked for about a year. You know, there were some websites about me. They were, it was awesome, right? So these tactics that we talk about in the first hour, represent pressure that presses down on a victim, a target. So that intimidation, ridicule, isolation, minimization, you'll find all of this in the book as well, become like grand pianos weighing over our heads. So one of the things that my police officer friend does, which I love, is he co-leads our group sometimes. If uh, my partner and I have to leave, he becomes a substitute and steps in. And a lot of the guys wanna ask him legal questions because he's a police officer. And one of the things I love is when a guy says, well, she's just as abusive as I am. And the officer takes it very seriously and he says, well, tell me about what happened. Tell me about what was done. And then he said, tell me about your level of fear. How afraid were you? Well, I wasn't. Okay, then it's probably not abuse, he'll say. And the way I equate it to guys is, uh, because I'm a complementarian, I do believe that there's different strokes for different folks, as it were, and there are behaviors that I can do to my wife because of the way I'm created and made that will elicit fear, threat, um, diminished uh, personhood that will hurt. You understand what I'm saying? If she does those same behaviors to me, I might get annoyed, frustrated, or angry. Do you see the difference? They're not, that doesn't mean they're less and less sinful, it just may mean that my experience is not the same. So just because I have tactics used against me doesn't mean it's the same thing because I'm not experiencing the same thing. The weight is different. Agreed? Okay, four of you, excellent. For so the rest of you who disagree, um, form a line afterwards, talk to Jim because um, I'll be headed to the green room. So just imagine all the weight that's experienced. So as you're dealing with victims, it's important for us to remember the type of pressure uh, that they're under. None of us, John Henderson says, can escape the brokenness of our world. We are sinful, hurting people in a universe groaning under the curse of sin. The reality, physical and sexual abuse in our world provides a blatant and painful proof of this brokenness. Uh, I'm not huge on, big on the words broken and healing. And um, I use those words, but they oftentimes need defining. But I think we can all agree that in a sin-sick, a sin-fulfilled world, a fallen world, we are going to encounter people that are less than whole, that are incomplete, that are cracked. Now, the one thing we can agree on is no one is irreparable, right? All of us represent that brokenness, and all of us can experience uh, fullness and completeness in Christ. And one day when we get to heaven, well, Right? We'll know uh, fully what we now know in part. So we live in a broken world, and so we should expect some brokenness. A few things that you can expect as you counsel with victims. Number one, you may encounter physical injury. This is really hard. One of the temptations for those of us as men is when a disclosure is made to the pastor and there's physical injury. Sometimes we get protector mode and we want to go call someone else harm. Again, the bullying the bully doesn't work. You should expect to see if you get involved in this work, bruises, cuts, black eyes. You should see addiction. We're gonna talk about that tomorrow, the overlap of addiction and domestic violence. I haven't shared with you in the last hour a story of the gentleman who got his, a gentleman's a stretch, the man who got his wife hooked on a heroin you might see restriction to medical attention. You might see uh, broken bones that didn't heal properly if you're in a long-term, physically violent situation. So don't be surprised if you witness or see physical injury. Early on in my pastorate, and this, this story is also in the book, uh, which you can buy now at the bookstore. Um, <laughs> I was uh, teaching for my friends at Lafayette recently. We were at a re- uh, weekend thing. And Jonathan Smith, who runs their bookstore uh, on the weekends, he said, hey, promote your book. I said, no problem. And um, so I always like to sell out at the faith conferences because my friend Rob Green's book has always got big stacks. And I like to put mine right beside him and then mock mock him as the <laughs> week goes on. It's sinful. I know I'm working on it. Um, so I'm promoting the book and it becomes this gag throughout the whole thing, right? It's like, don't forget the book. Kind of like I do with you guys, book, book schmook, whatever. And, um, so Jonathan comes in and says, Hey, could you tell Rob to promote his book? He doesn't promote it. And I knew that his session right after mine was premarital counseling, which is what his book topic is. So I asked the crowd of the group. I said, Hey guys, look, Rob doesn't promote his book as much as I do. And then someone said, you wrote a book, (laughs) you know, and, (laughs) I said, don't take me too seriously. I said, so here's what I want to do. If whenever he mentions that he wrote a book, I would like you guys to cheer. They were like, okay. I thought it might work. It might not work. Next session, I mean, I had taught for six straight hours on domestic violence, so I was in a great mood. And so I'm out in this hallway, drinking a Coke, leaning against the wall. And out of the blue, I hear this eruption of cheers and claps. And I felt so good. (laughs) And then later, uh, Rob comes walking into the room where I'm at, uh, I was getting some coffee, and he said, hey, great job. (laughs) He's like, I immediately said, Chris Moles put you after that, didn't he? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) What were we talking about? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Brokenness, brokenness. Uh, You should not be surprised to see anger and resentment, okay? Anger and resentment. And certainly, we want to help victims move from this to Christ-like conformity. But understand you are going to probably experience some of this. Uh, we'll talk uh, briefly about that uh, in a moment. But this will manifest itself in different ways. But certainly the weight of abuse can contribute to that. Shame. As we said earlier, I find that victims tend to accept guilt for even things they're not guilty for. So do not be surprised if you are walking through the weight of shame. Shame well, I could have done this differently, or I should have been this type of wife, or if I had only done this, he wouldn't have done that. And really pulling them back into truth is going to be essential there. But do expect shame. This is, uh, this is not just a victim-centered thing. This is kind of a cultural thing, and I want to try to illustrate this uh, with a little linguistic exercise I do uh, sometimes with women's groups. Um, and it's a tool that I first learned from Jackson Katz, who's not a, um, not a Christian that I know of. Um, but he says this, let's just take a simple sentence, okay? John beats Mary, are you with me? Right, what is the subject of the sentence? John, the verb is beats, the object then is Mary. Now what tends to happen culturally is similar to what will happen in the, in the English language. So we might then change the sentence to describe the past tense like this. Mary was beaten by John. Now what's the subject? Mary, right, was beaten. The object then, uh, in the prepositional statement, becomes John. Well, then describing it in past tense continually, as we describe it to more and more people, we may say this. Mary was beaten. What's the subject? Where's John? It's a little linguistic tool, but in our conscience, in our, in our culture, perpetrators tend to fall off the map. This happens in sexual assault, happens in domestic violence. Uh, it's just kind of the nature of what we do. It could be based on our compassion, could be any number of things, but we tend to focus in on the victim. Culturally, uh, societally, women who have been beaten are typically called battered. And so the sentence made them become this Mary is a battered woman. Now her entire identity has changed, right? Now her identity is no longer in Christ, if she's a believer. Her identity is in what happened to her. She's now a battered woman. This is not just a victim experience. This is kind of a cultural experience. I hope this is making sense, that that little tool kind of helps us illustrate that we tend to forget perpetrators and focus in on the victim. And one of two things either happen. We either blame them continually or we allow them to embrace their victim mentality continually. But either way, the perpetrator's been long gone. And I think what the Bible would have us do, what Christ would have us do, is to draw the perpetrator back in because he's the one who requires repentance So don't be surprised to experience shame. Maybe even an entire identity shift where my entire identity is built around the fact that I'm currently in an abusive relationship or maybe I was in an abusive relationship. Uh, Helplessness and hopelessness will be categories that we should um, be familiar with. Um, Women in particular who don't know who to turn to or what to do next, a sense of lostness, Doneness. I know those are not accurate words, but just the I'm spent. I've done everything that I can do. I'm exhausted. So our counseling may not look like some of our typical biblical counseling. We may have to be a little sparse on the homework. We may have to be a little bit careful. We don't want to overwhelm certain victims. Now, certainly some folks are ready to get going, but you need to be aware that there may be a level of helplessness where I've been told for so long I'm no good at anything and I don't get anything Right. The last thing I wanna do is come back to my counselor having screwed up all my homework. So being patient in that, reestablishing correct uh, identity is gonna be part of that. And then we should expect isolation and loneliness. Uh, You might see all of these, you might see some of these, but it's important to remember that when we're dealing with victims, there's a level of brokenness that we should be aware of. And to know that Jesus restores broken things. Aren't you glad that Jesus puts things back together? And the great thing about Jesus, here's what I love about Jesus. I think um, Christians kind of get a bad rap. Like sometimes we're, well, you guys are too hard. You guys are judgmental and blah, blah, blah. Because in our culture today, um, if you don't condone something, you're somehow judging it, right? But look at Jesus, how loving he was with the woman at the well, still calling her to truth, but doing it in a winsome way. What about the woman caught in adultery? Which is a crazy story, by the way. This just... You know, this just goes back to that male privilege category, doesn't it? I mean, where was the dude? She was caught in adultery by herself. That's the weirdest thing, (laughs) right? And yet Jesus was so patient and winsome, really articulating and following the law without giving to its its aggression and violence, right? Because he says, yeah, the penalty is stoning and the person without sin can throw the first rock. Him being the only one there without sin... Chooses and said to show mercy. Well, awesome. I love this dude, right? Jesus is the best and we're called to come alongside. And so when you're dealing with victims who've been isolated or hurt, labeled, conditioned, it's important to be patient, but always on the side of truth. We still pull them back to truth. A couple landmines that I see um, in what I call safety, suffering, and the sovereignty of God. We talked about this briefly. Uh, The most common questions I've been asked by Christian victims of domestic violence. Number one, what does God, what does the Bible say about abuse and divorce? Wouldn't you like me to answer that one? I'm not going to. Um, (laughs) There's, we would take it all day to kind of talk through that. Um, But that's a big question. And I think the heart behind the question is much more important than the answer to the question. What's motivating that? And what have you tried? What's your goal? What do you want? The second most common question is the one I want to address. Does God expect me to suffer in this relationship? And the answer to that is, well, it depends. What do you mean by suffer? Right? And that goes back to the theology of suffering. I said this earlier, but I would like to uh, reiterate it. A theology of suffering is tremendously beneficial to the biblical counselor. But in regards to victims of abuse, a theology of suffering without considering God's response to violence and oppression can lead to some dangerous advice. So please balance your theology of suffering with a theology of oppression. There are many great truths available to us in suffering, and these are things that victims should be taught. But if we're not addressing the other side, if we're not addressing the perpetrator, these alone uh, may not be sufficient. I hope this is making sense, because we do want her to know, and every sufferer to know that there's purpose in pain. Amen? God is not going to waste even the worst thing in your life. I, when I teach Romans 8, 28 and 29 to counsel these, I call it spaghetti Western theology. And I'm like, all things, good, bad, and ugly. Boom, boom, boom. Exactly, thank you. Um, <laughs> that even the things in our life that are ugly, the things that break the heart of God, the things that are devastatingly wicked, God does not waste those. And he will use everything in our life, good, bad, and ugly, to draw us back into conforming to Christ. Aren't you glad that that type of hope is available to victims? Because we don't have to be stuck here forever. This is not your identity. Your identity is not what's happened to you. We're gonna address it to the best of our ability and we're gonna try to to get it to stop and to change. And we're gonna work with you to find hope and healing and all the things that God wants to have for us. But in the meantime, here's the reminder, this is not who you are. There's provision in the pain. Aren't you glad (sighs) that God doesn't leave us alone in pain? I mean, this is biblical counseling 101. Nothing, no temptation. Um, You'll probably see in counseling, uh, Spaghetti Western, this I call the David Bowie principle Um, because the word temptation is the word pressure. I know. But David Bowie, Freddie Mercury. Oh my goodness, I love those guys. Um, Don't tell anybody because they're secular. But... (laughs) Um, they wrote a song years ago, right? Boom, 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 pressure. So I always think of that when I think of this verse. There's provision in the pain. No temptation, no pressure is overtaking you except what's common to man. But God is what? Faithful. He won't let you t- experience pressure or temptation beyond what you can bear, but he provides a way of escape so you can endure it. There's provision in the pain, Right? I know you've been a victim. I know you've been hurt. And we're going to stand with you in the gap. We're going to address this to the best of our ability. We're going to lovingly care for you. But the reality of it, this God has given you more than enough to stand strong in the face of what you've had happen to you. And in the meantime, we're going to hold your arms up. We're going to be part of your process because we love you. And part of the provision God's given you is us. Aren't you thankful that God has not left us as orphans? He's given us his spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us his church. There's power found in enduring pain. Again, love a theology of suffering, but we're going to combine it with our understanding of oppression. There's power found in enduring pain. James 1 tells us consider it pure joy. What? When you face trials of different kinds. You will probably notice I can't say that word well, um, I can't say I sounds curse of being from West Virginia so uh, I try to avoid them but sometimes you can't avoid them uh, same word as temptation in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. same idea pressure we should be experiencing joy when pressure comes on us why because perseverance does what creates maturity there's power in our pain And then there's promises in our pain. Aren't you glad that Jesus has suffered so that we're not left in a vacuum? What we've experienced, Jesus has experienced. Was Jesus ever abused? Was he ever betrayed? Yeah, yeah. There's tons of hope here, but please, please, please balance the hope we're giving with the confrontation of the perpetrator. Because take two verses and call me in the morning, right, is not the same as provision in the face of a group of people who love you enough to stand in the gap. Theology of suffering alone can prove dangerous. So use it well. Can and should suffering be avoided is a question that I ask myself and I think the answer is in certain circumstances, yes. Yes. We uh, had a gentleman at our church who was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, this was very severe. Uh, at one point, we thought he was going to die. I drove to, um, he was at uh, Duke. So I drove to Durham one night with my very pregnant wife. Uh, we drove to Durham uh, to be with him because we thought he was going to be uh, changing addresses that night. And, you know, God did an incredible work there. God healed him. I mean, There's no no if, ands, or buts about it. God took him from death, raised him up, and healed him. Praise the name of the Lord. Now, when he was first diagnosed, uh, I'm part of a uh, Christian Missionary Alliance church, and I know two different churches do different things. We practice James 5. Literally, we anoint with oil, and we pray for the sick, and lay hands on people, and this sort of thing. And we did that. In faith, believing that God could heal and that by his power and the atonement, he had provided for that. And we believed with Ralph that God could heal and we asked God to do so. But we did not then say to my friend, now don't go to your oncologist because we've got this covered. (laughs) Right? No, we did what we felt we were called to do as a church. And then he did what was best for his family, which was to get the cancer treated. Now, the the treatment nearly killed him, but God raised him up from that. What I'm saying is this. It's one thing to walk with a victim through the principles of Scripture. It's another to stand with them as they practice those principles. (laughs) Make sense? Yeah. Please don't abandon them for the sake of I prescribed what I was supposed to prescribe. Walk with them. Because there's a lot of practice involved in this, right? Okay. Let's move on. Ah, turning the tables. Here's the second landmine. So the first landmine is uh, suffering without balancing our theology. Uh, We want people to suffer well. but We want it to be balanced with our practical response. The second is the temptation to turn the tables. And this is very difficult. So I told you in the first session those areas of domestic violence you might experience in the counseling room. So you might see coercive control, which is what we're talking about, but then there's also reactive or resistive violence where a victim is pushing back against control. And then there's that third category, the, the less um, frequent category of, of common couple violence where it's not a pattern, there's no real motive, healthy people respond well, there's immaturity that's overcome, things like that. So I want you to consider the temptation to resistive violence and how we as biblical counselors, I think, have an obligation to help victims resist biblically. I would encourage you, really encourage you to read the Sermon on the Mount and then read Romans chapter 12 and then read 1 Peter 3. The early church had a pretty good handle on proper resistance. The whole church was founded and created and grew in an oppressive government regime, right? Yeah, the, the Pax Romano was not all that peaceful. It was peace by force. And so Jesus teaches his disciples that when you're oppressed, you can either respond violently like the zealots do, you can respond piously like the Pharisees do, or you can respond creatively like I do. <laughs> so you probably know the stories, right? The turn the other cheek, uh, walk the extra mile, leave the courtroom naked. okay. <laughs> Those are all designed, those are all designed to respond non-violently to coercive force. Really think about it. Jesus is creatively giving alternatives to his disciples. If a Roman soldier hits you, don't hit them back. Make them hit you like a man, right? Turn the left cheek so that they can't backhand it, so that you're doing this weird dance in the street. If he makes you carry his pack for a mile, which you were obligated to do under Roman law, then offer to go too. The first mile, you're a slave. The second, you're a free man. And all eyes are on who? The Roman soldier. I'll I'll take my pack back. No, I'm happy to do it. No, give me my pack back. People are going to think I'm making you do it. Well, you're not. I tell them, right? I'm happy. You're stressed out, right? Same thing with leave the courtroom naked, naked, whatever, Um, right? It was a shame to be naked, It was more shameful to see someone naked. It was most shameful to cause someone to be naked. So I leave the courtroom embarrassed. Everybody that sees me is embarrassed, but the guy holding my underpants and my shirt is really embarrassed. This is reiterated in Romans 12. Again, Peter talks about it in uh, his letter to the church. We are permitted to resist. We're just not allowed to resist the way the world resists. And I think that many cases, victims that we counsel are resisting in kind rather than learning how to be kind in their resistance. Make sense? This is not kill them with kindness. This is draw attention to how I'm being sinned against appropriately and prayerfully ask for repentance from that party. If you violate me physically, if you hit me and I hit you back, we've got to fight, don't we? (laughs) But if you hit me and I resist Appropriately, we don't have a fight anymore. Now all the onus is on you, all the weight's on you. And I don't think we do a very good job teaching resistance in the church nowadays. Does this make sense? Are you with me? Some of you are. Some of you are like, I don't like it. Um, well, most people don't. So uh, belief and support can be incredibly empowering to victims as it should be, but you need to be aware that this may be the first time she's felt powerful or in control. And the temptation may be to seek revenge, hold hostage, or rely on this newfound power for her safety and security rather than God. Uh, Resistance is acceptable, revenge is not. Revenge belongs to who? God, he will repay. So resistance is acceptable. I'm not comfortable with that. This is ungodly. I'm being sinned against. Revenge, not so much. Anger is uh, not only acceptable, uh, it's not only understandable, but it's acceptable. Remember, in your anger, do not sin? So if you're being violated sexually, physically, over the period of a long period of time through this weight and pressure, it's okay to be upset about that. What's not okay about that is to take matters into your own hands. It's, it's totally acceptable to be angry, but anger should be limited even if it's justified. You can read about that in Ephesians 4. So I want to encourage counselees to guard against and repent of bitterness. That's part of what we're getting rid of, isn't it? So I don't want my counseling to be promoting bitterness. I want my counseling to be promoting those three actions in Ephesians 4.32, right? Compassion, kindness, forgiveness. Now there might be some caveats to that but I want to promote that and guard against revenge while pursuing justice. You can see that in Romans chapter 12. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. All right. Hope and healing. Here's some basic commitments I think every church can make. Uh, when, when we've gotten to this place of data gathering, we know there's abuse taking place. Uh, we're ready to make, do some action. One of the things we want to do is confront the abuser and comfort the victim. Now, does that mean the victim is sinless? no, now, there's plenty of work to be done there. Does that mean the abuser is, you know, an evil monster? No. <laughs> but we are calling the oppressor to repentance. We're calling the victim back to Christ-like conformity. I got a few things in my notes here that might be helpful. Uh, under prevention, those are awfully small, but you've got them in your notes, I believe. Um, continue education. I really think this is where we need to go, by the way. I think the best hope we have for victim care is to actually be educated as a congregation and walk through that. There was a book by W. Bradford Wilcox a few years ago called Soft Patriarchs and New Men. I wouldn't call it a Christian book. It reads like a dissertation. But he took four independent studies about domestic violence and he generated some interesting results. And what he found was conservative Protestant men were found to be the most violent in the home compared to their Catholic counterparts, their mainline counterparts, and their secular counterparts. Here's what's crazy. He also found that conservative Protestant men made up the largest group of nonviolent men in the home. When you take the research apart, conservative Protestant men, there's a big bar graph over here and a big bar graph over here and nothing in the middle. They are the least violent and the most violent. So Wilcox asked the question, what's the difference? What is it about these guys that are different from these guys if they're both in the same tribe? The only discernible difference, the most violent group of men were irregular church attenders. The least violent group of men were regular church attenders. Now, he does not go any farther with his research So this is all opinion and assumption, but maybe you're making the same assumption I am. And that is that discipleship makes a difference. So in our culture, we're told that, you know, you complementarians or you patriarchs, you're producing violent men. There is some evidence to support that men who are not properly discipled are using our theology as a means of oppression, right? But that men who are properly discipled are actually obeying and abiding by the servant leadership principles of Jesus. Make sense? So, in prevention, it seems to me they would be helpful if our churches were really intentional about teaching young men about what it means to be a godly husband. Overwhelmingly if we had a group of men here that were part of my group and I were to say to them how many of you had a great relationship with your father if we have 10 men one might raise their hand a great number of the guys would say i don't even like my father we have a we're in desperate need of godly leadership from men to men you guys have to see this right It's not just fatherlessness. It is a lack of intentionality of older men loving and discipling younger men. It was such a foreign concept to me that one of my friends was telling me a story about how he came home uh, with a pair of tap shoes because he was taking tap dancing lessons for something he was doing. And his grandfather called him a derogatory name. I said, that's awful. He said, well, that's just the way Papa was. He wouldn't even tell me that he loved me what? This was foreign to me because the the men in the moles family are like uber affectionate, like bizarro. Like I thought it was normal. But like all the men in my family, we hug each other, we kiss each other, we tell each other, we love each other. My grandfather, till the day he died when I would visit him, when I left I would kiss him on the forehead and I would say, Papa, I love you. He would say, son, I love you. Every time. And you know what I'm finding? This is a foreign concept among young men in our culture. No one's teaching them how to be men. I don't necessarily recommend the book, but the story was fascinating to me. In his book, To Own a Dragon, uh, Reflections of Growing Up Without a Father by Donald Miller, he tells the story of a young tribe of adolescent elephants. Have you heard this story? It's a group of teenage elephants who were left alone in the wild. No one was supervising them, no male elephants, and they were in a perpetual state of adolescence. Yeah, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Sounds like my kids. Okay, some of you. And they knew this because elephants, when they're going through puberty, they ooze some kind of green thing down their leg, which is weird. But anyway, it was not going away. They were, they were tearing up villages. They had killed people. They were becoming a danger. And the, the wildlife management, they had two responses. We either shoot the elephants or we try to introduce a bull to their, their, their tribe, their group. They were able to introduce a male elephant to the group. And within a matter of weeks, they exited adolescence and they became full-fledged male elephants and they stopped the violence. Now, I know those are elephants. <laughs> okay? Not, not people. But is it that different from the need that we have in front of us? Young men do not know how to be godly husbands. Prevention is huge. Huge in our work. So I say, you pastors, you're probably preaching about this, at least preaching about marriage twice a year maybe, maybe once a year. At the very least, could you just say, hey, you know what, let me pause for a second and just tell you that domestic violence is a sin. At least start somewhere where we're acknowledging that this is real, that people are suffering, and that we may not have all the answers, but we're learning and trying to get some of the answers speak publicly about this there was a survey done among uh, it was 500 victims of domestic violence who were christians and they said 95 of them said they never heard the word abuse mentioned in the church if you receive a disclosure a couple things i would suggest i say you know believe her and what i mean by that is listen and affirm what you're hearing as i said in the first hour no one's telling you the whole truth and the assumption we've made in the church is, well, she's not telling me the whole truth, so I'll get the rest of the story from him. Well, you're getting a different story. It's like the old TV shows where they would tell their version of the story and they'd go back in black and white. You remember that? And then this person would be perfect and that'd be, you know, horrible. That's kind of the story you're getting. So when you get a disclosure, listen. A Harvard Divinity School study found that clergy were the number one, first contact of domestic violence victims. They were the first people they sought out following services they were ranked the least helpful the least helpful we can change that assure her and assist her based on her needs and document 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 you should be hopefully if your biblical counselors skilled at note-taking document what you're hearing You never know when and if it's gonna be necessary to disclose that information for her own safety and protection. If you haven't seen, I believe it was a 2020 interview on domestic violence where this young lady, her husband got the harshest sentence ever, 32 years for domestic battery because he had his 13 year old boy videotape one incident of violence. The videotape was devastating, but only recorded one instance. You could still only punish the one instance. But thank God for her boss, who had her desk calendar, and every time this young lady came to work with a black eye or a bruise or came in late or had red marks, she wrote on her calendar that date. They had dozens of instances. You never know how your documentation is going to be helpful. This is what... um, what is her name? Stacy Peterson. Is that correct? That She's still missing. Her pastor uh, invented an app because he wished that she would have had the opportunity to record a video because she suspected if something happened to her that it was Drew, that it was her husband. And so he developed an app where victims can record a video saying, if I go missing, I suspect it's, that's the world we live in. Okay. So (laughs) it's sad. I know. Um, prevention we want to speak the truth in love safety is a priority Uh, we want to acknowledge the truth and put off denial and so we really want to focus in on what's true about this situation we want to embrace the realities of the cross so we want to evidence God's compassion to her um we want to move from cursing, curses to blessings is what I'm trying to say. We want to connect to Christ's suffering. We don't suffer apart from Christ. We suffer with Christ. So her suffering is tragic and it's horrible and we want to see it end, but she's not alone, right? You guys remember the footprints in the sand poem? I know it was cheesy back in the day. My favorite meme is the one where it says, cause sand people walk in single file to hide their number. <laughs> it's really hilarious. Um, but the reality is, you're not alone in your suffering. Christ is there with you. I ruined that, didn't I? We also want to promote the, de- the defeat of evil. We're for that, aren't we? Are you tired of seeing evil succeed? Are you about sick of how evil's promoted and goodness is demoted? I'm sick of it. I'm tired of bad guys winning. The good news is, that's like the old preacher said, well, I read the back of the book, you know, and we win. Yes, the, the, the black hats will not prevail. But when you're in the midst of suffering, do you need reminded of that? Yes. Yes. We want to promote the experience and practice of forgiveness. And this is the one where a lot of us are going to struggle with. Because we're thinking with worldly vision, aren't we? Forgiveness is still part of this. Chris, you actually promote that victims forgive their abuser? Yeah, I think it's a healthy thing to do. Now, there's some caveats, there's some reminders here. But we want to see forgiveness. Being able to let go of hurt and extend grace. We want to make sure that the offense is clearly acknowledged, right? This is not a 1 Peter 4 8 type of issue, right? Love covers a multitude of sins. This is an overlook issue. This is not an overlook issue. But this is an issue that requires forgiveness. We want to promote confession and repentance. I'm not saying that you have to, you have a spirit of forgiveness, a willingness to forgive, be ready to forgive, but we're expecting him to confess and repent. Right? Because really, you're going to be positioned best with a forgiving spirit, aren't you? You ever heard Corey Timboom explain that? She says forgiveness is like the ringing of a church bell. You pull on the rope and nothing happens, but after time, you begin to hear, boom. She said, look, you practice forgiveness, present yourself, you don't feel it, <laughs> right? That takes time. So we wanna promote confession, promote repentance. We wanna be prepared to forgive. We wanna make sure that we're helping appropriate boundaries be set and enforced. So as counselors, we gotta remember that while we're waiting for repentance to be proven, for repentance to take place, there's gonna be some boundaries. And part of his concrete goals is gonna be, you probably shouldn't cross these, Right? Don't cross this boundary. That's evidence that you're not repentant. Repenting. Uh, remember too that uh, forgiveness does not remove consequences. You guys know that, right? I hope so. I've worked with a lot of pastors who've called me and said, well, you know, he repented and she forgave him and now they're uh, you know, doing this, this, and this. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> are you sure? Because sometimes there's consequences. Remember the children of Israel gave a bad report God literally says to him, He says, I forgive you. Don't you love that? I love you. Now wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. <laughs> Sometimes, even in the midst of forgiveness, there's still consequences. The law of consequences has not been negated. So, the individual that I work with who had committed a violent act of violence against his wife, and in the process of restoring things and making amends and repairing and repenting, the courts found him guilty. Now he's sentenced to jail and the lawyer wants him to plead down to admit some things and not others but he's been counseled biblically now he knows i did it and there's consequences he needs to send me to jail that's part of this process so forgiveness does not negate consequences here's some strategies real quick sorry i'm going to overchurch you I would say if you're going to start some systems and strategies to reach out to victims, you need leadership buy-in. It's important to have conversations and support from key leaders uh, if you're going to start a victim care ministry. I have found that victim care ministries that start independent of the local church tend to kind of lag what happens if a leadership team gets involved. Uh, I would encourage elders to have conversations about this. If you're an elder in the church, I would recommend that you bring this up as a point of conversation for this coming year. Guys, we need to talk about our abuse policy, what we think about abuse from child abuse, sexual abuse, domestic abuse, and if you need a uh, resource, there's a great book in the... um, (laughs) (laughs) All right, I know. Um, I recommend to you the, the message Fooled by False Leadership by Jason Meyer. This was what happened as a result of that. Uh, John Henderson came and did some training. I was able to come and work with the elders for a while. This was the statement released by the elders. We, the council of the elders of Bethlehem Baptist, are resolved to root out all forms of domestic abuse, mental, emotional, physical, and sexual from our midst. This destructive way of relating to our spouse is a satanic distortion of the Christ-like male leadership because it defaces the depiction of Christ's love for his bride. The shepherds of Bethlehem stand at the ready, to protect the abused, call abusers to repentance, discipline the unrepentant, and hold high the stunning picture how much Christ loves His church. Do you think that communicated something? Yeah, you better believe it. Uh, B, I let me encourage you to empower female leadership, um, key leaders to assemble a team response. Female voices have to be a part of this. If you're doing victim care, and 85% of victims are going to be female, and it's even higher. Uh, I should say it's not high, it's higher in intimate relationships and sexual assault, but actually the greatest number of male victims are victims of other men and it's childhood sexual assault. So if you wanna talk about male victims, I'm happy to do that, but over 70% of them are victims of uh, other men. That's why I keep saying it's a men's issue. Uh, Female leadership is key here. We've got to have females at the table. Um, One example of this is a smaller church, uh, Lone Oak Church, 75 to 100 people Uh, they had a passionate leader who heard a presentation from a deputy sheriff and wanted to learn more. They were willing to create a system. And so what happened was she ended up starting a uh, support group called Under His Wings that now ministers to victims of domestic violence. And that came from her own passion and then she was able to deliver that to the church. Another example is also from Bethlehem Baptist following that series of messages the DART team was established. That's called the Domestic Abuse Response Team. It's a multi-site disciplinary committee made up mostly of women overseen by the counseling pastor and the group of elders. And they are now meeting monthly in a round table to discuss Uh, cases, responses. They have attorneys on their team now, counselors on their team now, uh, advocates on their team now. Similar to my stop team, this church has developed a team so that they can manage cases better. Uh, This was formed by the elders and a group of compassionate ladies. That's an example. So uh, I've told you this. I'm going backwards now, obviously. You have in your um, packet some resources. Oh, I do say consider hiring a consultant, wink, wink, if you need some help with that, you <laughs> can talk to me. Uh, you see the, uh, the information there. I'm redoing my website right now, so it's kind of sparse, but Lord willing, I was telling some folks at the break, I'm really working to make the website more content-rich, trying to get more contributors uh, to a blog, trying to do some podcasts so that we have more resources available to you so you can process this. All right. Is it break time? I feel like I need a break. Copyright 2017, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.